from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. We are continuing our study in the Minor Prophets. And today we'll be in the book of Obadiah. So if you'd get your Bibles, please, and open there to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest of the prophetic books. In fact, it is the shortest book in the entire Old Testament. And you might reasonably expect this will be the shortest sermon. <laughs> but knowing preachers as we do, I wouldn't exactly bank on that one. We'll be looking at numerous verses throughout the entire book, so you'd want to keep your Bibles open. But to get us started, we're going to read verses 1 and 2 of Obadiah. Obadiah, being it only has one chapter, that's it, and verses 1 and 2. If you'd stand with me, do we do that out of reverence for God's Word, realizing what it is? Though penned by man, indeed, it is the Word of the true and living God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and messengers have been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you will shall be utterly despised. Lord, we pray your spirit might come even now. Be our help and open our hearts to your truth. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You might be seated. Well, the author of this book uh, is very obviously Obadiah. There are several Obadiahs given in the Old Testament. But for this particular one, this is the only place in the entire Bible that his name is mentioned. And all that we know about him is found in this small first verse. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know his hometown. We know we know nothing about him at all. He's basically, I guess what you could say, at least as far as we're concerned, he's a nobody. Which reminds me of the Casting Crown song, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who saved my soul. And uh, a bit that's Obadiah. He, as far as... <laughs> being known by many or having much influence evidently, not so much, but he did have a message from God. And he delivered that message in God's power and grace. Now, you might feel like a nobody. Maybe you are. Uh, nobody would really get outside our little area. Maybe nobody would know who you are, wouldn't know your name. You walk the streets of Portland. Uh, nobody would know you, maybe. You've got no uh, really uh, clout of any sort, no real power in many areas. So maybe you'd consider yourself just a nobody. Well, I have very good news for you. God delights in using nobodies. Take his 12 apostles, for example. Just a bunch of, basically a bunch of nobodies for the most part. And God can take a nobody that submits themselves to him. He can give them a task and empower them and use them mightily in the kingdom's work. And he can do that with you. 
Well, when was this book written? Well, we have difficulties there. Also, the only clue we really have is found in verse 11. Uh, what says on the day that you, speaking of Edom, stood aloft, and on the day strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, and you are like one of them. So we're dealing with a time, I wrote in a time when Jerusalem was harassed by enemies, and in some form or another they were plundered. Well, trouble is, there's several occasions when that might possibly have happened. One of them is in Second Chronicles chapter 21, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram to anger the Philistines and the Arabians who are near Ethiopia. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house. That would be in Jerusalem. And also his sons and his wives. So there's no son left to him except Jehoahaz his youngest son. This would occur in about 850 B.C., somewhere in that range. The other event that possibly could be the time of Obadiah's writing is, uh, took place in 586, that's about 250 years later, in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army. They came in, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, destroyed the beautiful temple that Solomon had made, slaughtered people by the thousands, took a great host of captives, leaving just a few little survivors in the land, and they were soon gone. So it could have been then. Um, John MacArthur, renowned pastor and Bible teacher, holds to the first occasion the Chronicles passage. While the Reform, Reformation Study Bible, which many of you carry, edited by R.C. Sproul, holds to the second. So what are we to do? We just say, well, we don't know for sure exactly when it was written. It would only make a difference, I guess, for us in that if you're trying to place Obadiah in a line of a prophet when he occurred chronologically, that's a little differently, either close to Amos or way out at the end of things. Um, by the way, you can read about the fall of Jerusalem in the, in the final book of Kings, in the final book of Chronicles, and in Jeremiah has a lot, and you can read about that there if you choose. Well, this book deals with the, book, with the nation of Edom. Now, this is where you need your Bible map. Uh, you find the nation of Israel. You see the Jordan River. You go to the east or to the right-hand side of the river, find the Dead Sea at the bottom, and across from the Dead Sea there on the east side is the country of Moab. And right below Moab, and therefore below the Dead Sea, is the country of Edom. And uh, it is this that... Uh, uh, Obadiah is somewhat concerned about. Uh, now, Edomites lived in Edom. Now, that's not too complicated a statement to make. But uh, anyway, uh, we find that uh, uh, this is where we need some Bible history. So you go to the book of Genesis, and you have Abraham... The beginning of God's people, really, of the nation of Israel. We have Abraham and his wife Sarah had one son, Isaac. He was a son of promise and of covenant. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, had two sons. They were twins, Jacob and Esau. And although Esau was the older, 
Jacob was the one of promise. Now the Edomites are descendants of Esau, while the children of Israel are the descendants of Jacob, whose name eventually was changed to Israel. And those boys had trouble right from the beginning, you might say from the womb, and on up through, and their descendants followed, and even to our passage of Scripture, we though blood kin, they had great difficulties with one another. Now, if you happen to have your outline with you uh, on the handout, you'll notice that point one is God's dealing with Edom. And this in verses 1 through 14. And we find, when we consider God's dealing with him, that there is a severe judgment from God against Edom. We gather some of this from verse 2 of our passage when he says, Behold, I'll make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. Verses 8 and 9. Will I not, and this is the Lord speaking, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and the understanding of the of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timnon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So we see, indeed, a very severe judgment from God against this nation of Esau, of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Now, please don't think God is harsh or cruel or mean for dispensing such a severe judgment against Esau, against the Edomites. Um, we, need, we need to remember that God is good and righteous and just in his person and in everything that he does. And that God is the greatest being. He is an infinite being. And to rebel against God, turn your back on him, to despise his works and his people is an infinite sin and deserves an infinite punishment. So God has dealt out on Edom because this is exactly what Edom did. They rebelled against God. They mistreated his people. They turned their back on him. A very serious offense. And God justly and rightly punishes them with a very severe punishment. Now, this brings forth a truth, I think, that is helpful. That God will right every wrong, either in this life are in the age to come. And this was certainly encouraging words for uh, these poor Jews and their times of difficulty because Edom had so mistreated them, and we'll see this a little bit later on, had so mistreated them, and it looked like Edom was getting off scot-free. But God says, no, no, they're not going to get off scot-free, for God will right every wrong. Now, some of you here this morning have been hurt, you've been mistreated, maybe been abused, and it looks like the perpetrator of that is getting away scot-free. Nothing seemed to be happening. But God knows your name, and God knows what happens, and God will right every wrong You'll do it either now, in this time in which we live, or at the end of time. But he will right every wrong. He'll make it right. We do not need to take vengeance. 
when we're wrong, God will take it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Well, Obadiah gives us two reasons why God brings this judgment on Edom. There could be more, I suppose, but we're going to look at the two that he gives us. The first one is pride in verses 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the crags of the rock, in your lofty drillings, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like easel, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The first thing that we would know, the first reason, is their pride. Now, what we're talking about here is sinful pride. It's not If I were to say, for instance, I'm proud of my grandson. It's not that type of thing. It is a sinful pride. Webster's Dictionary defines it as an inordinate self-esteem. Or we might say pride is self-exaltation, lifting oneself up. Edom is a good example of this. And the fulfillment of Proverbs 16:18 is seen in them. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart, the New American Standard says, Proud of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Pride is a very serious sin. And therefore, it's not surprising that we find recorded in James, Peter also says it, quoting the Proverbs, God resists the proud, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So one thing we can know for sure that if you are a proud one, you're not receiving God's grace. No, he is, as you would, he is holding you at arm's length. That is not what you want at all. So um, the pride of man, how very serious Calvin comments, the man The more a man shall lift himself up, the further he shall go from God. Now, the corresponding Christian virtue is humility. Spurgeon defines humility as a proper estimation of yourself. In other words, seeing yourselves rightly. For instance, if you are a great athlete, and you know you're a great athlete, and someone comes up to you and says, oh, you're such a great athlete. And you say, oh, no, I'm not really. No, not me. It's actually all my teammates. It's, that's not humility. That's basically hypocrisy. The proper answer, I would think, should be, thank you very much. I realize that all the gifts I have are from God. And I'm very grateful to him for them. And I hope to use them for his glory. That would be more an appropriate answer and an humble answer. Just seeing things as they properly are. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now, I have to repeat that because I get that confused every time I try to say it, but here, and I'm not sure I did it right then. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In other words, becoming less self-centered, less self-exalting, and becoming more God-centered and more God-exalting. 
Augustine, the great church theologian many years ago, says for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing. Humility is the second thing. Humility is the third. And so how much we need to be humble people that we might receive what we so desperately need, the grace of God. So I think it would be appropriate to take just a moment right now for you to look within your heart and see if there's any pride there, any self-exalting in any way, because this is such a serious offense to God. And it puts you in a very difficult position. So look, is there any pride in you? This might be an appropriate time for everybody to get down on their knees and humble themselves before God, really. And in our prideful heart, we say, oh, I wouldn't do that. But anyway, uh, to see if there's pride. And then confess that before God. Confess your pride. And ask Him for help because this is a difficult thing. Because by our fallen human nature, none of us are humble. Not by by our fallen nature. We're proud. We're self-exalting. And so we as Christians have to battle with that and fight and ask God to help us and give us the humility that we might put it on like a garment and live in the grace that he gives the humble day by day, seeing ourselves and our situations exactly as they are. And and pride is a root sin, and from it springs many others. And we also see in this passage their self-dependence and self-confidence and their presumption. For uh, Edom's topography, because of the very rugged area there south of the Dead Sea, and very mountainous um some of them, some of the peaks go as much as 5,000 feet above sea level, and it was very discouraging to invaders, for just because it was hard to get to. And in fact, there were situations where just a few soldiers could hold off a whole army just because of the lay of the land. Some of you that are familiar with Petra have some idea of what the, that topography is like. And so uh, Edom was very proud of their secure situation. And you hear them saying, even our passage, who can bring us down to the ground? And you notice that the passage means about their drawing the crags and the lo- that's a lofty place. That's because of their topography. Who should bring us down to the ground? And then we hear the Lord's answer. I can. And I will. So again, we must take just a moment, I think, to look at our own hearts and make certain there's not presumption and self, sinful self-confidence there. Because I hope you realize that your very life is in God's hands. And the reason you are alive this minute as seconds tick by is because God allows it to be so. And he could He could take your life just like that, even here as you sit. You're, you are dependent upon God for your life. And you're dependent upon Him for the health, whatever amount of health you might have. Uh, you're dependent upon God for that and for your resources and for your home and for your family and for your pleasure. They come from God. And you're dependent upon Him. 
And every day as we get up, we should fall upon our faces before the Lord and say, Oh, Lord, I need you desperately today for my life and for my health and for strength and for insight and ability and wisdom. I just don't have it alone. I need you, God. I need you. So when we do start our days without prayer, without that type of prayer, what are we really saying? We're saying, Lord, I've got this take. I've got it. Don't worry, I've got this. If I get in trouble, I'll call, but I've got a handle on this. No problem. My friends, that's presumption. And we have to each look at our own heart on these matters. But God help us to be humble and lowly and dependent upon God for our every single need. Well, there's a second reason for uh, Edom's judgment. And that was their ill treatment of Judah. And we see this in verses 10 and 11. Notice in that 10th verse, because of the violence you did your brother Jacob, violence and brother should not really be in the same sentence, should they? Same shall cover you and be cut off forever on the day you stood aloft, on the day the strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered the gates. You cast lots for Jerusalem, and you and you were like one of them. So when uh, Jerusalem and Judah had the time of great trouble, was Edom sympathetic to them? Did they lend encouragement? Did they give a helping hand in any way they were that was possible? No, they did not. They did the exact opposite of that. They stood aloft. They gloated. They even, it seems, somehow got involved in the plundering of Judah in their troubles. That's a very serious matter for that. Notice in verses 12 and 13, you'll find eight times in the English Standard Version, at least eight times the words do not, do not gloat, do not rejoice, do not boast, do not enter, do not gloat, do not loot the wealth, do not stand in the crossroads, do not hand over uh, his survivors. Now, all these things actually had already happened. They were in the past. And it was as if Obadiah was replaying them in his mind and seeing them again. And as he replayed them in his mind, he was horrified at what Edom was doing. You could just hear, no, no, no. These things came to mind. Well, again, we have to look at our own hearts here. Do we care about those that are hurting and needy about us? And those that are suffering. Do you pray? Do you pray for the hurting people? Do you try to minister them in Christ's name? Do you lend a hand of help when you can? I would suggest that here this morning. There's a great number of people that are suffering, that are hurting, that are lonely, that have all kinds of problems. Do you really take time and ask God for insight and wisdom that you might, if he might will it, you might come across some of those and pray for them and try to minister? Do you? Or are you so busy going about your own way, doing your own thing, caught up in your own business, that you don't have time for anyone else? Well, God, help us to have a tender heart for the hurting and needy that are all about us. Well, this brings us to the second point in your outline. 
the day of the Lord. God's promise of a new and moral order. This is in verses 15 through 21. And I believe when it speaks of the day of the Lord, we are talking about the ultimate and final day of the Lord. At the end of time, I gather that, first of all, from verse 15, with a mention in verse of this being near upon all nations, not just Edom. Edom now has become basically a figure of what all nations will be like. But uh, the word all nations, then in verse 21, that last phrase, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Well, he's all kingdoms of the Lord's now, we know. But uh, obviously every kingdom, every nation in this world does not bow the knee before the Lord. They don't recognize his sovereignty. They don't care about him and his word or his people or anything. But there's coming a day at the end when the kingdom will be the Lord's. In a very real and full sense. Revelation 11:15 says, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, as Handel would say. Hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah. Well, so would be. Now, we are able, having the New Testament, we're able to see some things that Obadiah never possibly could. And it is this, that right in the very center and the heart of this final day of the Lord is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our glorious Lord's return, and that is in the very middle of all of these. And so uh, there are two aspects of this, the judgment of the nations. And the victory and the lifting up of the people of God. And the Lord will bring about those, both of those things when he come. Every enemy will be defeated at the coming of the Lord. Satan and all the demonic powers, uh, the Antichrist, death, that last great enemy. All those who turned their back on the Lord, gone their own way, disregarded Him, whether they be a nation or whether they be individuals. We'll have to give an account before the Lord for these things. This is where you need to look in your own heart and make certain that you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, that you've committed your life to Him, you are His follower. For only in Christ is there any hope in this great day of the Lord. And we know the day of the Lord is coming. We just don't know when it's coming. But it's coming is certain. And you need to be ready and prepared. You need to be ready this day, this moment. So I would urge you, just just being at an attendant church is not what it takes, although that's important enough. It's a heart issue of trusting and casting your life upon the Lord. And you need to look seriously at your own life. Have you trusted the Lord? Have you really trusted the Lord? If the day of the Lord were today, where would you stand is the question. Well, not only will every enemy be defeated when the Lord comes, but for his people, they'll be delivered and they'll be victorious. But as we look at these in our passage, in these last few verses, at uh, these promises given to the people of God at the day of the Lord, they're all given to Israel, those today that we call Jews. And 
I would guess the great percentage of us in here are not Jews. Maybe all of us. So if the promises are given to Israel, do they have any relevance at all for us today? And I believe the answer to that is yes. Now, my eschatology, study of last things, is very simple and you might say pretty naive, which is fine. Uh, I base most of what I'm thinking concerning the church in Israel and so forth on Romans 11, verses 17 through 24. And there the Apostle Paul says the people of God are like an olive tree. It starts with Abraham and uh, some of those things. And you have this tree of God's people, Israel. But, Paul tells us, many, in fact most, of the Jews are removed from that tree. They've been pruned off, broken off. He gives a reason, Paul does. He says because of unbelief. But as we see it... uh, they're not a part of the true people. It says that Paul says in Romans 9, all Israel is not Israel. In other words, all physical Israel is not the true, real, spiritual Israel, the people of God. It's always been that way, and it's that way when Obadiah spoke. It's that way now in the New Testament. All, all the Jews are not really God's spiritual people. Some are. Thank God for that. I've got some dear friends that are Jewish people, but um, are not. Now, but here's the miracle. God graciously in great kindness has taken Gentiles, that's non-Jews, taken Gentiles, heathen if you will, taken them, and he has grafted them in to the people of God. So that now these Gentiles, and he does this in Christ and in Christ alone, but in Christ he's grafted us in so that we who once were not a people are the people of God. We who have not obtained mercy have now obtained mercy in Christ, and we've been made a part of the true people of God. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ... Then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Well, I've trusted Christ. I'm in Christ. Therefore, I am an, a descendant of Abraham. No, I'm not a physical descendant, of course. I'm a he, I'm a, I'm a Gentile through and through. But, uh, I'm a spiritual descendant of Abraham. I'm part of the people of the people of God, the people of promise. I'm an heir of the promise. And whatever God promises to the descendants of Abraham, the true Israel, they're mine in Christ because that's where I am. And I tell you, that is a blessing in in verses 19 and 20. You'll see the word possess uh, listed six times there. Uh, it just goes, and you just, uh, you'll just have to notice those for you, so we don't take time to read all those. But count all the times the word possess. It's obvious we are going to possess some things. Now, when you read those verses, starting in verse, verses, verses 19 and 20, you'll find they are placed, they are put in physical and material terms. Which is fine. But surely we can go higher than that. More richly than that, 
in the things that we as Christians possess. Well, we might get some of these physical things. Fine, that's fine. But there's more than that for us. What do, what do the, will the Christians possess in this great day of the Lord when the Lord comes again for the second time? We'll possess a glorified, resurrected body. That's one thing. And how glorious that'll be. We uh, will possess a new heaven and a new earth. We will possess the heavenly city, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. We'll possess that. I've just finished reading Pilgrim's Progress. Again, I try to read it every year. And Pilgrim on his journey, he's getting close. And they, there they call it the celestial city. And he's getting close to the celestial city. And he's not so far away. And he's able to go up on a high elevation there. Uh, Pilgrim is. And he looks, and he can see the gleam of the, of the celestial city to which he's headed. Now sometimes, I think I can catch a glimpse. You see, I'm 77 years old. I'm quite a bit further along the road toward that heavenly city and to the celestial city. And many of you in this room just catch a tiny glimpse of that of which we will possess on heaven's bright shore. There will be no more dying not one little grave in all that fair land. Not even a tear will, fit, will dim the eye. And no one there will say goodbye. But sing his praise through endless days on heaven's bright shore. And we'll inherit, we'll possess fellowship with the saints of God. Miss Jonathan Edwards describes things will fellowship in a heaven that is a world of love. And how wonderful that will be. And greatest of all, we'll have fellowship with our God. And it'll be more intimate and deeper and richer and more glorious and more lovely than anything we've ever experienced in this life or anything that we can even imagine in this life. And all we can say as we think of all these things is come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, we're going to bow before the Lord. I want to give you just a moment to let God speak to your heart. He's taken his word. May he uh, use some of that to minister to you. If there's sins you need to confess, if there's thanksgivings you need to give, if God would direct your path in any way, take a few moments in sincerity and honesty and open before the Lord and let him speak to you as we just take a moment to bow together. such needy creatures and how desperately we need you to speak to our hearts to guide our ways to help us in our frailties 
Open our eyes, Lord, unto you and all your beauty and all your loveliness. Indeed, that we might see Christ as our prayer today. May we see him high and lifted up in all his glory and be drawn to him with our lives. Help us, God, we pray. We're thankful for your mercies to us. And we bless you and praise you and worship you, our great God and King. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.